while we're waiting for for Adam back and Harry helping to uh, to come to the stage, uh, I'm going to tell y'all about the Bitcoin 2022 conference. Uh, so Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th in Miami, Florida. It is a festival celebrating the Bitcoin culture. Four days of straight, nonstop Bitcoining. Wednesday is our industry day. That is a full day dedicated to those building Bitcoin, the industry, the open source developers, uh, the miners. So that is the industry day. Thursday, Friday, that is the full two days of Bitcoin 2022 general admission madness. Uh, That is thousands of people descending on Miami Beach, Florida for Bitcoin. Hundreds and hundreds of speakers on four stages. And then Saturday the 9th is Sound Money Fest. Uh, So that is a one-day music festival dedicated to the Bitcoin culture. Uh, All of the hundreds of Bitcoin artists at our art gallery will be in display all four days, including Sound Money Fest. And we have incredible headliners getting on stage to perform for Bitcoiners at Sound Money Fest. And for those who are uh, who are not into the lineup, uh, there's going to be quite an incredible lineup of comedians. Last year, we had Tim Dillon, which was awesome. And we want to do that five, six times better. So take a look at b.tc forward slash conference. Check out the promo code Satoshi. So that is promo code Satoshi for 10% off. Uh, and don't miss the conference. Harry, welcome to the stage. How's it going, my man? Excellent, excellent. So, uh, yeah, we're, this is going to be a sort of uh, kind of old school session, let's say. I'm a, a former research scientist at MIT and a kind of a PhD in AI sort of guy. That's my background. I, I run a, a mixnet company called NIM Technologies. And I'm very interested in the history of proof of work and mixnets. And so I'm incredibly excited to be uh discussing with Adam Beck, uh, the kind of how proof of work came to be in this whole sort of culture of anonymous email remailers uh, that the cypherpunks created, things that sort of led us, uh, led to uh, sort of the prehistory of Bitcoin. So that's, uh, I hope people are interested in this topic. I think it should be pretty crazy. A lot of things, which at least I've been looking at this topic for uh, years, and a lot of the most important stuff hasn't been written down. So it's all this kind of... uh, oral cypherpunk history yeah i'm excited to dive in harry i know you have uh, a lot of questions uh for dr adam back when he joins and it looks like he's in the audience now but like, while we're waiting for adam to join can you uh i guess can you talk a little bit about nimtech and you know generally what you're trying yeah, to do i'll give a i'll give a quick overview of uh, something a lot of people don't think about which is the peer-to-peer uh, broadcast in Bitcoin. So whenever I uh, do a Bitcoin transaction or I want, I want to, I'm a miner, I want to broadcast my, my mining block or I want to just send a transaction through a full node, uh, there's a peer-to-peer broadcast over TCP IP. And I think a lot of people slowly figured out over time uh, that broadcast reveals my IP address, which if you're using IPv4, looks like something like 254.168.8.30 or something. If you're using IPv6, it's an incomprehensible list of letters and numbers. Uh, but regardless, that IP address, you can go to a website like <laughs> whatismyipaddress.com, I think, and it will track that IP address, IP address down to the neighborhood uh, that you're in. 
And that, you know, if you're trying to do use Bitcoin in a pseudonymous fashion, uh, that's pretty dangerous. Now, luckily, the Bitcoin devs are incredibly intelligent and have uh, recognized this. And so you have uh, new technologies implemented in Bitcoin. A few, uh, actually, I think two or three years ago, Dandelion, which tries to basically, rather than just your full node doing that broadcast directly, you do like, you know, Dandelion looks like a flower, right? So you do one or two or three randomized hops. That's the stem. And then you do the broadcast. Uh, that's like the petals and the flower uh, being opened. But the problem is that, you know, if you're really concerned about your Bitcoin transa transaction, if you're really concerned about your privacy, you also have to be concerned about more powerful adversaries, uh, you know, tech companies like Chainalysis, for example, which in 2015 were revealed to be running lots of full nodes and doing lots of connections to other full nodes, trying to make themselves a sort of super node in order to figure out people's IP addresses. And then you have to not only worry about IP addresses, but if you can imagine a very powerful adversary, sort of, you know, with a God's eye view of the network, like the NSA, uh, this is what you call in a global passive adversary, they don't, even if you try to hide your IP address using Dandelion or using a VPN or using Tor, they can look at the traffic patterns. They can look at the timing and volume of how, when you've sent those transactions, how often you sent them. Let's say I did two or three transactions at once. Uh, and um, they can use that to kind of track you down. And that, that's, uh, that's pretty dangerous. And so we, we, we have been, you know, looking at trying to solve this. I mean, Lightning is, is nice insofar as that's off-chain, uh, but we have uh, some unpublished R&D and a little bit of published R&D with my fellow NIM employee, Anya Petrowska, showing that these kinds of powerful adversaries, even if you're doing your, your transactions off-chain using Lightning, they can still look at who's sending who packets and uh, figure out who they are. And even with technology like VPNs and Tor, uh, these adversaries can kind of look at the entry nodes of Tor and look at the exit nodes and do kind of what's called traffic correlation attacks. And those are sort of probably some of the kinds of attacks that have helped bring down uh, you know, things that maybe some of us don't agree with, like dark markets, but also can be used to uh, de-anonymize and, and, you know, block and censor perfectly, uh, maybe not censor, but they can at least be used to de-anonymize uh, connections. So peer-to-peer -peer broadcasts are great because they're censorship resistant, uh, but they're not so great because they're not very privacy preserving. And so there's this whole other stack of technologies developed, uh, invented by David Chom, and then developed uh, numerous people in the cypherpunk mailing list developed them, Lynn Sassaman, Lance Cottrell with the Mixmaster system, then Mixed Minion with the George Denise of the Tor developers, and now uh, me and George back together again working on NIM, which is called a MixNet. And the concept of a MixNet is different than Tor and Dandelion insofar as that it adds a new element uh, to defend against these kind of global passive adversaries. So not only does it kind of encrypt your packets and send them to different computers like Dandelion or Tor, it also mixes up the packets. That's why it's called a MixNet. It takes the packets, and if you consider the packets to be like uh, cards, it's similar to a deck of cards. It just shuffles those cards and sends it to another node. That node does a shuffle. And what NIM does, which is a little bit different than the older networks, is we kind of use a kind of nice statistical process, and we add fake traffic in uh, to try to do essentially some form of what Adam uh, called traffic shaping, uh, which we think, and we are still working on improving this, provides... Uh, provably better anonymous peer-to-peer uh, -peer broadcast
for uh, for Bitcoin than, say, uh, Dandelion or Tor, but also, more importantly, uh, can be used not just for Bitcoin, but for other kinds of traffic as well, just as you can use a VPN with Bitcoin or Tor with Bitcoin, but you can also use Tor to browse the web or VPN even to browse the web. So that's kind of what we're interested in. And that's why I'm, I'm happy to answer and discuss this topic in length. Uh, but I'm particularly interested in the kind of history of how mixnets, uh, which were used to defend email, um, uh, you know, to keep email anonymous, uh, particularly from adversaries. I think the Scientologists were the first back in the 90s and how this led to technologies that I think most people don't know Adam in, helped invent or helped work on. So everyone knows Adam back from inventing proof of work. But very few people know the story about how proof of work comes out of all this other amazing work that Adam and Adam Shostak and a bunch of uh, Ian Goldberg and a bunch of other amazing cypherpunks were doing on what was called the Freedom Network uh, and other alternative networks such as PipeNet uh, by Wei Dai, uh, which I think most people have forgotten, which are super interesting because it shows that the space of anonymous networking technologies is not just limited to VPNs or Tor, that there's a huge space of technologies that hasn't been fully explored that we think could help us uh, defend our privacy against even these kind of nation state level adversaries. So that's a pretty long introduction. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, but that is indeed uh, the kind of short overview of what we call these uh, mixed nets or uh, anonymous overlay networks like onion routing. Curiously, I was running a mixed master remailer is how I came to invent Hashcash. <laughs> Because uh, so so what Harry said, like one form of quite good privacy is Mixmaster, which is uh, for anonymizing emails. It, it splits them into fixed size packets, sends them around to remailers, and the remailers reorder packets. And so it's harder to like passively observe and imply from the message send time who's sending what. Whereas more real-time systems, which are used for web browsing like Tor, are easier to track because there's essentially no reordering. And reordering adds latency. Email is a kind of store and forward thing which can tolerate, you know, 50 minutes of message delivery latency. Nobody wants that for browsing the web. And so browsing the web is much harder to provide privacy for. So how Hashcash came out of that situation was... I was operating one of these remailers. It was called Swiss.ch. So I had rented a, a shell account from a friend of mine who lived in Switzerland and had a, a small one-man ISP as a kind of hobby besides his day job. So it was a bit of jurisdictional arbitrage going on there, which is a kind of fun story in itself. And uh, But people, people were basically spamming through the remailers, and it wasn't like commercial spam, like trying to you know, make money, it was like a denial of service. They were just sending random numbers and being a nuisance and sending it to Usenet discussion forums so it would get broadcast around the world a thousand times over across thousands of Usenet servers. And we think what they were trying to do is they didn't like privacy, so they wanted to annoy or trigger the system administrators that operated these Usenet services to block remailers. So they would like create a nuisance through the remailers. So it's kind of false flag operation. And so sort of looking at that and trying to think about what, what one could do about that, let me think about spam in a different way, which is most of the spam technology, even today, is actually trying to identify the sender and blacklist them. And in this environment, 
with remailers, you can't blacklist an IP address or a sending email because you don't know what it is by design, right? And so that led to the alternative viewpoint. Well, like the actual problem is that email is free. And if we can impose a little a small cost, that would deter this kind of behavior or make it expensive. And so that's where the Ashcash postage stamp came from. So I've got a, a quick question for you, Ab. So that, that, that's fascinating. Because I had always sort of guessed that maybe the anonymous uh, email spam issue was due to Mixmaster. So it's wonderful to know you were you were actually running uh, Lennon Lance's Mixmaster software. I didn't know you actually were suffering denial of service attacks. So that's that's crazy. I, I don't know why these people were against privacy, but who knows? I mean, all sorts of attacks can happen. What Can you explain a little bit about what happened after uh, Mixmaster? Because this is where I have real trouble, you know, and I consider myself a kind of expert in this space, uh, figuring out what's going on. Because there's all this really interesting uh, discussions with cypherpunk mailing lists and your initial paper uh, on uh, mass surveillance uh, with zero-knowledge systems where you point out that there's a sort of trade-off function and I think you were the you and your co-authors were the first people to point this out. It later is it's now formalized something called the anonymity trilemma, which is a trade-off right. between latency, anonymity, and bandwidth. And you also point out DDoS attacks, which no one really talks about right. anymore, which are still a, a giant deal, right? And right, the whole internet's behind yeah. Cloudflare because of this DDoS nonsense. So I'd like to hear like what happened after Mixmaster with PipeNet and Freedom. I don't know if anyone implement PipeNet. I mean, there's these questions I've never been able to quite figure out. Yeah, so PipeNet never got implemented. I think our paper probably was the first to point out that trilemma, though we didn't express it in exactly the same terms. And the one of the trilemma is that the this kind of uh, the PipeNet type of design is quite good for privacy, but it's vulnerable to denial of service because you can, to stop the whole network, you can just make a route through it and not send any traffic because the PipeNet model is that every node connected to a node has to send its message in a kind of interval and then those are shuffled and sent out again. And so if any of them don't send, the network stops and that flows through the system. So that's not good. And then the other observation is that the real-time networks are quite vulnerable to passive adversaries because people want low latency. And I think, you know, if, if you talk about a passive adversary, there's a weaker attacker, which is a kind of uh, a participant that selectively jams channel capacity. So you'll be able to discover what the channel capacity is by just repeatedly opening circuits until you get declined and then you know the capacity and so you can kind of send a lot of bandwidth and interfere with other people. And if you then you you know if you can see on a web server somebody's browsing something, uh, you can just you know jam different circuits through the network and see when their web browsing stops or or becomes slow. And now you know who's doing it. So you know the usual threat model is to not consider that. They'll talk about a global passive adversary and they'll think that that's you know that's unlikely or expensive or outside their threat model. I mean, of course, the Snowden disclosures came after this and showed that actually that was perfectly <laughs> perfectly uh, plausible. In any case, you can, you can attack it without being a global passive adversary by being a malicious user, basically, and 
selectively denying service and watching what happens while only having visibility on a few places. Yeah, so those are the kind of trade-offs. And I guess, you know, the Lightning Network also has a kind of fairly real-time sort of Tor-like protocol in it. And then there's Tor and the NIMIP project, so, uh, which brings some more modern crypto to the story. Yeah, so, I mean, we're, I'm very interested. Uh, I mean, I think, so for those of you that, that haven't read Adam's paper, uh, let's see, I have to like, bring up the title. It's called Traffic Analysis Attacks and Trade-Offs and Anonymity Providing Systems by Adam Ulfmuller and Anton Stiglick, who are all, uh, this is all pre-Blockstreams. This is Zero Knowledge Systems Incorporated. Uh, and that is a, a quite, even though most people don't know about these systems, this sort of was the, I think, maybe about the first, really the first paper that says, well, look, everyone's really worried about cryptography. In fact, if you don't mind, Adam, I'll, I'll just uh, I'll, I can even I can right. even uh, quote the paper because I think it's, it's got a really good a, a really good quote in it where we basically we basically point out that. Let's see if I can find the exact sentence. Uh, cryptographers have studied ways of providing confidentiality, authentication and integrity to parties that wish to communicate securely amongst each other. Protocols that provide these products have been thoroughly studied, and we now have efficient, effective, and reasonably well-understood protocols. So this is, you know, just on the side, TLS, PGP, so on and so forth. One other desired part of this received much less attention is that protecting the identity of one partners in communication. This is important property, for example, the mere fact that two competing companies are exchanging messages might leak valuable information. For example, it could be an indication that two companies are negotiating a merger. And it's also properties desired by internet users. Users don't want to be monitored to have their surfing habits logged and preserved by unauthorized uh, parties in order to create a dossier that contains extensive information about them and stored for long periods of time. So I think that's a great problem statement because I think a lot of people get a little bit confused, and I think reasonably so, between the kind of what we call security properties, uh, the protecting the content of the message itself, that's what cryptography does, and what privacy systems are trying to achieve, which is a bit broader, particularly with anonymous traffic overlay networks. Uh, we're trying to actually defend the metadata. Who is sending who? Is Alice talking to Bob? Is someone sending uh, Bitcoin to someone else? And, um, you know, and I think a lot of people just kind of view Tor as a black box that just kind of solves this problem magically, or maybe they don't know about Tor, they view their VPN as a black box that stores this problem magically, or maybe they view their, you know, they know a lot about Bitcoin, they might think Dandelion is a black box uh, that solves this, this problem. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is, it's actually a very hard problem to solve, and there's lots of trade-offs, and there's lots of very clever attacks, some of which... Uh, we don't really have good solutions to. So there's one attack, which you mentioned, which is something that we're dealing with right now at NIM, or at least we're trying to deal with it. We haven't got it uh, completely solved. Is something that you call the latency attack. And you note that the latency attack is the most difficult to protect against. So I think this is the attack that... So let's say I want to figure out if two people are communicating to each other or they're using the same circuit or the same lightning channel. So I can just sort of ping... If I can not just clog the traffic, but I can just ping the nodes that I think are involved and I can figure out how far away they are from each other because the speed of light, it's fast, but it's not that fast. We can still get differences between pinging a server in Japan and a server in the United States or a server in Europe. And uh, th these kind of attacks can let you statistically figure out 
who's using what anonymous channel or not. So I don't know if you do you have any feel. I mean, I assume this is also something people can use and take advantage of with Bitcoin as well. You know, I don't know what 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 do you think of this kind of these sort of latency attacks as well? And this is kind of again outside the scope of traditional cryptography. But very much just like DDoS attacks, a really real world attack that if you really want to use the uh, Internet effectively and anonymously, you, you have to think about. I will just say it's a very uh, it's a very hard problem um, at NIM. We're trying to do something which sounds a bit crazy, but what I do think is the right way to solve the problem, which we a we just admitted exist that there, is, there are going to be different latencies between different nodes and networks. So if I'm trying to figure out if you're using lightning or if you're using Tor, I'm gonna figure out what Tor node you are, and, I have a, and I'm trying to guess what geographical location you are. These latencies can be used to de-anonymize uh, you. But uh, what, we, what we are hoping to do is by basically, again, it's a trade-off, by making the traffic a little bit slower, we think we can disguise these latencies, and by also ordering the kind of routes so that the routes go through a uniform set of latencies. So let's say in Tor, most of the traffic is from the United States because most people that use Tor in the United States for some reason. It goes to Germany because there's lots of volunteers in Germany running Tor nodes. And then it goes back to the United States because most people that use Tor, they're accessing some Silicon Valley service. But you can imagine more sophisticated systems which enforce some kind of latency ordering. So, for example, let's imagine, you know, Tor, it's a little bit like a VPN, but there's three hops. So I send traffic from one hop to another hop to a third hop what if that first hop was always in europe what if that second hop was always in asia and what if that third hop was always in the americas and we could sort of prove that these ip addresses were in these locations i think that might be the, uh, one way to attack that problem but that being said it, just you know fair warning we at nim are still working on this tor has itself this problem and, and no other technology to my knowledge has i don't know adam do you have any thoughts on these kind of latency issues and uh, all of this? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a problem because, you know, one threat model is the global passive adversary, but there's a simpler, cheaper threat model, which, which you know, people are assuming is intelligence agencies, basically. But there's a cheaper attack, which is that you can potentially influence latency by, you know, getting a high-speed net, high-speed high server in Amazon or something and flooding different channels in the network and seeing who slows down as a result, right? So you can sort of uh, use a binary search to triangulate something. If you've got visibility of a website where there's some traffic and you have visibility of some candidate users, you only need like, it's kind of black box, right? You can sort of uh, find out and narrow things down step by step, binary search. So it's tricky, and of course the uh, approaches that do more like PipeNet or MixNet did avoid that because they insist on uh, getting traffic from all of the nodes and reordering them or placing a minimum. You know, they might they might let the traffic through after a certain delay. But of course, that has uh, side effects for interactive uh, browsing. Um, so one thing I thought about, which I'm not sure has been done, is actually to include the web servers inside the anonymity network itself. So basically to make a, you know, Apache web server and common web server plugins 
that terminate Tor or NIMIP, you know, right in the web server, so that you know for the for the outside observer, they can't tell as easily what's going on with the web traffic because you know some of the web traffic is unencrypted or the sizes of the web requests make it obvious which page is being requested because the you know, traffic going to the website is kind of visible through SSL, like the shape of it, which page has been loaded, probably. So some of that could be combated by bringing the web server into the into the model, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, that, that I think, you know, one of the nice things about Bitcoin is the transactions are, are fairly uniform size, and people forget when they're using Tor to go to, like, a website and say, I want to buy something. Uh, that website has a fingerprint it's literally you can do what's called a website fingerprinting attack and that exactly is the shape of the website it was the shape of the website that's the number of tcpi packets that needed to download all that wonderful html javascript and that's pretty unique that's pretty unique per website so you know obviously just to repeat you know i can just look at which websites you're going to if i'm your isp if i want to if i guess you're going to let's say you know i don't know www.evilweb.com and evilweb.com has a certain amount of JavaScript and certain HTML that, that has a certain you know, size, I can kind of figure out by just looking, literally a very weak adversary, just, just your ISP can kind of figure out you're looking at evilweb.com even if you're, you're just downloading packets over Tor or VPN. And, um, you know, I, I think Adam's, what Adam was pointing to there is, is sort of into what Tor is trying to do with hidden services, where, you know, hidden services put a website or, another kind of service inside of Tor. So, you know, I'm going through Tor, I'm hopping through Tor, but rather than exit Tor, I essentially have a kind of DHT, a distributed hash table in the middle, and that DHT redirects me to a particular Tor, uh, a kind of hidden service inside of Tor, which then could be a website that's only accessible via its .onion address using only the Tor browser. And that is pretty cool. And that's uh, obviously what a lot of people have been working on. Now, what we've noticed though over time is that those uh, hidden services, those kind of websites inside Tor, are also getting taken out on a regular basis. Uh, we suspect that it's a sort of similar kind of attack to what you do to the endpoints. You can also do inside Tor. So you can say, well, you know, I believe that this node inside Tor is hosting, you know, www, you know, I don't know, Silk Road version 5.org. And, you know, I, I, I know what Silk Road version 5.org, what it's fingerprint is in terms of JavaScript and HTML. So I'm just going to watch all the traffic going around Tor and try to kind of kind of guess which nodes are hosting uh, hosting that website. And I think that's what uh, some of the scandals uh, around Carnegie Mellon and Tor were about, where the, the researchers from Carnegie Mellon were essentially attacking Tor, trying to figure these things out, I think, on behalf of the U.S. government. Uh, then, of course, you know, we have all the end-to-end -end correlation attacks on Tor, which Adam also mentioned, where, you know, TLS used to be stripped off and people would just steal Bitcoin. And now the, I forget what's called, the Keck or CAC attack, where a bunch of Tor exit nodes are ran by adversaries. These are really hard attacks to prevent. Uh, at NIM, we are kind of moving away from a Tor-like model because the thing is, we're more like PipeNet or a MixNet. And because of that, we're naturally going to be a bit slower because we're mixing these packets up and we're routing each packet individually. So, the, and, and the way to think about individual packet routing is that every time I send a new packet, it gets a new route. And this is not what Tor VPNs do. When I use a VPN, I just use one route. It's always the same VPN. And Tor is much better. It's a, it's a three hop route, but the problem is that route uh, changes only every 10 minutes. So the nice thing about Dandelion 
uh, is that the route is randomized with every Bitcoin transaction. So that's one point where Dandelion is superior, I would say, to just a just a kind of naive usage of Tor in a full node with Bitcoin. But at the same point, you know, if you, if you're routing each message individually because you're really paranoid, you're going to have a certain slowdown. And I think that slowdown might be okay. And the way we're trying to tackle that slowdown at NIM, that that latency trade-off, we're, we're, we're more anonymous but willing to be a bit slower, is that we basically sort of say, well, you know, there's certain kinds of transactions people are okay with being a few seconds or maybe even a few minutes slow, such as email, such as uh, Bitcoin transactions. And a lot of these transactions are not web browsing. And while web browsing needs a kind of open internet proxy or needs the ability to host websites, uh, you know, most of what people are doing uh, with Bitcoin or with instant messaging is either like a client server model. So Signal has essentially a server and you have a Signal client on your phone or in Bitcoin, you have a full node that does the broadcast. And you're like, often most people aren't running their own full nodes. You have a light client, SPV wallet or whatever that you're using for your, uh, your initial, uh, that communicates to the full node. So we at NIM are kind of looking at really working at disguising that initial connection from the client to the server so that the server doesn't know who you are. Or, or in this case, the Bitcoin full node has, uh, can, is, you're fully unlinked uh, from the Bitcoin full node. So that's kind of what we're concentrating on. And that's more of a client server model inside, weirdly enough, using a peer-to-peer -peer network to defend uh, and keep anonymous the connection between the client and the server so that the server can then talk to, for example, another peer-to-peer -peer network. And uh, this all sounds a bit paranoid, but I do want to just point out to people these attacks are pretty realistic. We have evidence. There was a big scandal in 2015. I'd love to know if Adam knows about this or other people know about where Chainalysis did get revealed that they were running a lot of Bitcoin full nodes. Uh, and people, I think they were just sit, literally singing pings over the Bitcoin network and they were discovering uh, that some of these nodes were ran by Chainalysis. Um, I think they had some sort of Chainalysis login. And, uh, and then more recently, well, we said, well, this is, of course, if this is happening, how bad is, how, how many nodes have to be corrupt so you can de-anonymize people using their IP address. And so we did some new research, and I'll try to put this on the internet afterwards and share the link, where we looked at the Lightning Network, and we said that, you know, looking at the real-world Lightning Network today, you can, uh, if there's kind of five adversarial nodes, if you want to do a de-anonymization attacks on Lightning Network transactions, you can de-anonymize about half of the transactions. And Dandelion and Dandelion Plus, again, much better than nothing, but they really only provide uh, two bits or maybe five bits of entropy, uh, which is not very much. That's, you know, four, you're anonymous among four people, for example, two bits of entropy, when only 15% of the network is, the Bitcoin full nodes are corrupt. So I would like to know, I mean, Adam, do you think these attacks are are realistic on Bitcoin? Or if you have, do you, I mean, you, you at Blockstream see a lot more Bitcoin than we do. How, how, how do you think there are these attacks that de-anonymized Bitcoin uses on a, on a regular basis? And, and what should we do about it? Um, using Bitcoin, I mean, Bitcoin transactions are small, so they can afford, and, and they're not that real time, right? Because you've got to wait for a block to confirm them anyway. So I think, you know, tens of seconds of latency on a Bitcoin transaction are fine. So it seems to me like a kind of moderately slow, uh, shuffled broadcast with layered encryption would be pretty good for Bitcoin transactions um, as a complement to Dandelion, which is just trying to make it less obvious 
which IP address is the sender's entity encryption on the on the hops. Yo, what is going on, plebs? We're going to take a break from our programming to tell you about the resurrection of our print magazine, starting with the El Salvador issue. Starting this fall, Bitcoin Magazine will be available on newsstands nationwide and at retail stores such as Barnes & Noble. Don't want to get off your couch, though? No problem. You can also go to store.bitcoinmagazine.com. So skip the line and get each issue shipped directly to your front door with our annual subscription. I'm talking four issues a year that contain exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, along with powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Subscribe today and get 21% off using code podcast at checkout. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, podcast at checkout. The world of crypto can seem like the Wild West sometimes. Soaring highs, crashing lows, celebrity shills, and new coins popping up seemingly out of nowhere every day. Look, we get it because we've been there before. At Bitcoin Magazine, we aim to filter out the noise and help newcomers concentrate on the signal. That's why we focus on Bitcoin only. Learning about Bitcoin may seem intimidating at first, but we've worked hard to break things down in a simple and digestible format that anyone can understand. Bitcoin Magazine has launched a free 21-day email course that teaches you about the fundamentals of Bitcoin. You'll receive one new lesson each day that covers a brand new topic as we guide you down the Bitcoin rabbit hole with quick and easy three to five minute reads. Not only do you get the free course, but everyone who completes the quiz at the end will earn some free Bitcoin. Start learning and earning Bitcoin today. Visit b.tc forward slash 21 days to enroll. And, and, and then another interesting bit of cypherpunk history, which which I think has been a little bit forgotten, which I would like because I was trying to understand this as well. So before, you know, so I do think that it's realistic to use, you know, something like a mixnet uh, to defend at least the first hop to a full node and using that in conjunction with Dandelion should provide, I think, some, some pretty stellar privacy. That's why we're trying to build them. Until we have them working, I would just suggest people use Tor. Tor is the, you know, I, I, Tor is all open source. The developers are pretty hardcore, amazing people. So I do want to make sure we keep supporting uh, the Tor community. The, but I, there, you know, back in the day, there were some alternatives to Tor. And one of the most interesting, I can never quite figure out the exact design or, or how it differed from Tor, was the network that you were working on, or at least for some part of your life, Adam, called Freedom. Can you describe technically what? the kind of concept of the freedom network was this is again i think you know pre-bitcoin and how the freedom network differed or didn't differ from tour yeah i mean it, it just came before tour and it's like kind of tour like and of course it was targeting real-time use like web browsing the way it was organized was to i mean zero knowledge systems was a, a business so they were trying to make you know make money so they could build more privacy tech and uh so they were charging for kind of network access and then providing a revenue share to ISPs internationally that were sympathetic to privacy to run you know, a rack mount server running this software. And then those kind of servers would form the backbone of the network. So I think Tor is a little bit you know, more peer-to-peer -peer decentralized. Anybody can join and run a Tor node, whereas the Freedom Network was less 
peer-to-peer. -peer. And I guess it's like a little easier to start that way. And then another thing we did at Zero was we had a slower kind of network for email. And that was, you know, a bit more Mixmaster-like in, and was actually replyable because um, Mixmaster by itself, you can't reply to the email. And there's a concept of a sort of pseudonymous email that is replyable uh, with a kind of reply block or something. So we, we had a system for that at Zero. And some point, you know, at some point, I I was thinking that actually this may not be that good in privacy and security terms. So that maybe we should, because because one of the challenges with that is if you can reply, there is a publicly accessible blob which is a nested encrypted instruction of how to identify you, like how to find your real unencrypted email address. It's just like your email address encrypted through like three or five servers and you will have discovered the identity of each server as you decrypt it. And so there's a, there's, there was a real risk in my mind that somebody was determined to identify a pseudonymous email participant could, you know, take it with a court order to one remailer after another internationally and ultimately decrypt it. And so what we did instead was made a next version, which is basically a large pop server, like a, a mail server, that you would connect to using the more real-time Tor-like network. And then you would fetch from there um, while being anonymous. So sort of basically using a pop server over Tor as a way to receive pseudonymous email. Now to, to discover somebody's email, you have to do these kind of, you know, global passive adversary kind of attacks, which I think are harder. And um, there was a concept called forward anonymity in the network, which is something that I had uh, observed around this time. I think Tor makes use of it or discusses it. So there's the concept of forward secrecy, which means that if somebody records your encrypted um, SSL session or something, they can't come to you afterwards and demand you to decrypt it because the protocol uses temporary keys and you don't have them after, you know, within seconds after the connection is closed, after you've closed the browser tab or something. And so forward anonymity is the same concept but applied to anonymity that if somebody would come to you know, a Tor server or an anonymous email server after the fact with some recorded encrypted information that was exchanged for an email or web browsing and ask them to decrypt it, they shouldn't be able to. And so by doing it with this kind of more real-time access to a pop server, we got, I think, a bit uh, a bit better on, the, on that forward anonymity criteria. Yeah, so just, just maybe for the audience to, to kind of understand forward security a bit, the one way to think about it is the difference between uh, PGP and, say, Signal, where in PGP, you know, if I give you my key and, you know, I've got my private key, you've got my public key and vice versa, we can send these wonderful encrypted messages. But if someone, you know, steals my laptop and gets my key, they can then decrypt all my messages. But that's not the case necessarily with, let's say, Signal. Um because each message generates a new, as Adam put it, temporary key. And then that temporary key, uh, the next message, when I, I send you a reply, generates a new temporary key. So this is kind of uh, 
what you call, almost call a ratchet, I think is the term that, that, that signal uses for the, for these keys. And what's really interesting, I did not know that freedom had this concept of forward anonymity. I actually saw that you had worked Adam on uh, forward secrecy at TLS and PGP as well. Uh, I, I have to sit down and think about forward anonymity because we, we at NIM are, are dealing with this, the, the same problem. It's not an easy problem to solve. So uh, let's say, you know, again, I want to send an anonymous email uh, and one of the reasons why anonymous emails never took off, and this is, you know, I, I've had quite a few discussions with Ian Goldberg over this, is that, you know, it, you, you couldn't respond to anyone. So I would, I, it was great for, you know, I don't know, you don't say I want to, I want to <laughs> deliver something that I don't want to be connected to me ever. Like, you know, let's say I want to deliver, like, I don't know. And there's a famous case of a crazy guy using Tor to deliver a bomb threat. And, and, you know, but for most people, uh, you know, they want to respond. So let's say I'm Snowden, I'm leaking the NSA documents. Uh, you know, I want to establish contact with a journalist like Glenn Greenwald, but that journalist has to, has, I, I want to establish that contact anonymously, but that journalist somehow has to email me back without my, I, you know, without my, my real identity being revealed and not, and, I, and not my IP address or email either, because you know, if you're Snowden, it's not just your real name that you don't want to leak. It's where you are. You, you, for example, you could be hiding in Hong Kong. And, and that, that's a really hard problem. Anyone who's, who's seen the, the kind of hilarious clips of Snowden trying to give instructions to Glenn Greenwald about how to use PGP and what a total disaster that was, it, 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 it's super hard. And so it, it, and, and, and at NIM, we're taking off from a concept that's actually not, maybe not for anonymous, and it has, I think, some of the same problems that Adam identified. So I, I need to think about this a bit more. But we're using a descendant of a design that came after Mixmaster. So Lynn Sassman built Mixmaster, the kind of original, at least, at least maybe correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, I think that was the first Mixnet implementation, at least that I've been able to track down. I mean, Chom invented it, but I don't think he implemented it ever. And the first Mixnet that I saw was uh, Lynn, Lynn and Lance's Mixmaster anonymous email remailer for the cypherpunks to replace whatever the the finnish guys uh software was and then you know but the, it didn't have replies so then george denisis and the two developers of tour uh roger and uh, nick they built mix minion and mix minion again it's, it's exactly what adam said it had this thing called a single use reply block built in so this is like i i send you a message and as part of the message i send you there's a little kind of a key, let's say, attached to the message and a bit of encrypted data. And that encrypted data has the path back to another mix node in the mix network. So this is, for example, a little bit like a hidden service. It's a path right back to hidden service. And you and I drop my message off there. But but and, and so I want to respond to you. So you send me a message. You say, hey, I'm Snowden. I want to leak these NSA docs. Lynn's like, great. I want to, I will publish these NSA docs. I look at that single-use reply block. That doesn't tell me Snowden's email, doesn't have his IP address, doesn't tell me anything about him. It just gives me the address of another node in this mixed network, this anonymous network. I send that message back to Snowden, and uh, but I, you know, and it just dropped off a mixed node. It's like a Dropbox, or a, and then Snowden would at some point later retrieve that message. And that's actually what Nim is working on now. But the problem. Well, that approach is exactly what Adam points out, which is that, you know, an, an adversary that's very powerful could just, you know, kind of watch all the traffic and probably figure out, you know, let's say I drop something off in a mix node. Not many people are using the mix net and I can just, you know, some guy goes to get that message. That guy's probably Snowden. I can I can look at the traffic and and figure that out. And that that's really dangerous. We've actually been looking at NIM. This is very much in research mode now. 
we're looking at what's called private information retrieval uh, as a, a possible method of solving this problem, where essentially you don't just have one Dropbox, you have 20. And so it's very hard for the adversary to watch all of it. And maybe you spread your reply uh, among many different Dropboxes. And that's how we were thinking about it. I have to sit back and think about this forward uh, anonymity issue. Um, but I do want to go back to zero knowledge systems. So one of the issues that, uh, you know, Tor, like you said, Tor is a little bit more peer to peer than zero knowledge because, you know, with free, the Freedom Network, the, the Freedom Network itself as a company uh, was running all of these nodes or at least some portion of them. And obviously, you know, Freedom, uh, zero knowledge systems could be attacked and that could be used to attack the Freedom Network. Well, Tor doesn't have that problem yeah, I mean, the, as much. The, yeah. uh... The, the answer to the um, uh, zero-knowledge systems running it is that they contracted with various ISPs to run them so that they wouldn't have enough control to, like, eavesdrop on the whole network. And just a quick question. Is it true that, that Mixmaster was the first that Mixnet that you saw implemented, or were there ones before that? I mean, I think it was the first or the first that got any significant real-world use anyway. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there was, um, like... PGP remailers, which was like basically Pennet Phi style remailers, but with PGP encryption that Halfmini built, but it didn't have, it didn't break the email messages up into fixed size chunks. So if somebody could observe, they could just figure out what's what by the size of their message kind of thing. And actually, I'd like to, to talk about the size of the message issue. So I, I, uh, so one of the, the interesting things that we got, you have to think about when you're thinking about traffic analysis is you know, obviously with Bitcoin, there the Bitcoin transactions are all sort of the same size. This is great. But what if I'm using the same anonymous remailer to send Bitcoin transactions and let's say I'm sending a, a large file? So this is something, uh, obviously the large file is a very different traffic signature. It looks at a lot more packets in the Bitcoin transaction. And how can we hide these two types of traffic together? That's a really hard problem. And I, I remember, I was trying to look in the history. I think the first concept of using mixed nets and payments was actually not for email and it wasn't for digital cash. I think it was actually file storage. I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, because you know this better than me, Adam. I think it was Ross Anderson's, what was called the Eternity Service in 1997, which I don't think, I think you coded up. I don't think Ross tried to code it up. Was originally yeah. envisioned as sort of anonymous, decentralized file storage. Yeah, I mean, his design was a bit more elaborate than what I built, but I was like impatient and I wanted to build something simple that I could deploy. So I uh, kind of made a simplified alternative and used the same name. But uh, yeah, basically the way I did it was to use Usenet as a broadcast service and sort of storage system. So subscribers who wanted to run caches of it would keep the uh, encrypted content messages that would get broadcast and then they would run like a local proxy that would uh, decrypt them and serve them as web pages and so the point was you would be browsing you know you'd, you'd receive all the traffic in this encrypted dark web kind of space and if you had the URL, the URL would have encryption keys baked into it and you could decrypt them or it could be a password. So it's all based on PGP and broadcast. But Ross Anderson's uh, approach was more sophisticated um, and complicated. So, yeah, I expect he had some mixed net concepts in there, but it, the full design was never implemented. 
Yeah, because I was reading the paper, and he's like, oh, yeah, don't worry, we'll just use a mix that, and we'll just have some digital cash that will just magically work. And I was like, wow, those are very hard problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he, kind of, he kind of assumed it just, he kind of assumed Bitcoin existed, and there was a working mix that, and then somehow he put a file storage system on top of it. Um, yeah. I mean, the, there's another interesting connection between Bitcoin and things like Mixmaster, PipeNet, and Tor, which is... Yeah, at this time, like early nineties to two thousands, the the cypherpunks were thinking that you know privacy tech was cool. We needed more privacy, freedom of association, and so on online. But that for this to work well, you would need anonymous electronic cash so that you could have quality of service and pay for it, and you know scale it. And so, you know, as well as they. Yeah, so just just to pay for the infrastructure itself, right? To self-fund the infrastructure, and of, of course as well that you know the ability to buy things anonymously, like a, a PDF report or consulting services, pseudonymously on the internet and so forth, was interesting as well. Yeah, there, so there was a kind of connection. So people were interested in you know Tor and Remailers, but also electronic cash. And so that's kind of cool that Bitcoin, well, very cool that Bitcoin realized that aspect of it of the picture yeah and i just want to make it clear like i i am very much into anonymous transactions and privacy but i think the value of bitcoin comes from digital scarcity and transparency so you know the reason why you know fiat is the true master shitcoin is because there is no transparency into what the fed is doing you know we, we hear rumors there's interest rates hiking and rumor you know they just can print as much money as possible and I think, you know, the great thing about Bitcoin is that it's transparent, that you know exactly how much Bitcoin you have and that you can kind of log to make sure the whole system does preserve that digital scarcity. So on that level, I don't right. see uh, anything. I, I think Bitcoin is, uh, as I think you point out once, Adam, is I think it's pretty close to an optimal design. Now, the only thing that I think Bitcoin could use a bit, which we're now getting with Schnorr and Taproot, but I do want to ask a bit about the history of this is I do think it'd be nice to be able to, and I think Liquid is basically the right designer to say, well, do we have some sort of side chain that can take Bitcoin in and make it private via confidential transactions or blinded, uh, blinded addresses? And a lot of this conceptual work, I think, comes also from the cypherpunks, all of the kind of Chomian, uh, Chom's original Chomian eCash, which he tried to implement and, and failed with DigiCash. And I think a lot of the, the issues with that is because all the, including newer systems like GNU Tower that basically kind of revisit these 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 charming eCash systems that use essentially some sort of blinded signature for the cash and to maintain the audit books. These systems are all basically centralized. But what I've seen is that that I would like to hear a bit about how charming eCash was thought of by the cypherpunks, but also now it looks like Blockstream is bringing it back with uh, MiniMint support, which is. Uh, I think a, a federated Chamian eCash mint. Uh, could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, the interesting thing, I mean, the Chamian eCash approach, and there there are a whole range of uh, protocols, including one by Stefan Brands, which is more modern and better than the original Chom protocol. Those systems are are very have very nice, like full anonymity and privacy and very strong guarantees, but they are, they have two problems. One is they're centralized. And the second problem is they're unauditable. So you have to trust this centralized, I mean, it's just, 
the academic cryptographers looking at them didn't spot the problem because it was an assumption. And people like take assumptions as red after a while. That's just the way it works. And so they live with it and assume that's natural. And Bitcoin solved a problem that they weren't cognizant of. But the the fact that it's not auditable seems to be fairly inherently baked into the fact that the server is uh, basically blind signing something. So you, you don't really have a way to check that it didn't create those coins from nothing by itself. Um, nevertheless, it you know the, the privacy problem is pretty interesting. So it's an interesting trade-off. And one way to sort of improve its trustability is to make it into a threshold so that you know, let's say there are a dozen servers and nine of them have to sign. Now, you know, nine of them have to collude to create money without backing. And so that's a step forwards. And then the concept with the minimin is that the you would pay into it and get coins in exchange for Bitcoin or Lightning Bitcoin. And that, that would be held in a scrow in a multi-sig by those nodes and could be paid out. So you're sort of trusting the server still, but at least the server has multiple participants that have to collude to uh, to take the funds, basically, or, or to create more funds in in like blind format than exist in in the underlying Bitcoin. Um, so, it, yeah, go ahead. So, so just to make sure I, I get it, so I'm sending you, let's say, I'm basically sending these these set of federated servers some Bitcoin. They hold it in escrow in like a multi-sig. And yeah. then you can do the kind of Chamian eCash game inside. It's actually all the transactions are anonymous and everyone can escrow out. Is that sort of? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of similar to Liquid, actually, in terms of how the peg works on Liquid. So with Liquid, it's 11 of 15. And it's we recently did an upgrade, which you know, is, is a major upgrade for being able to dynamically change the membership and the size. Um, but basically, in Liquid... The funds are held in an 11 of 15 S, well, you know, sort of hardware enforced peg in protocol. And, you know, to take the funds, there would have to be large scale collusion, and the people doing it would have to compromise their hardware, which is a temporal resistant. So that, that's the kind of attempt to sort of harden it or increase the security of that arrangement. But essentially, you do a peg in and there's an automated process where you get, you get liquid Bitcoin out of it. You use that with confidential transactions on the network. And eventually the current bearer holder can ask to peg it out. And you know, that goes through one of the service providers and you get back your Bitcoin. And so there's a similar concept going on with Minimint, which is that the, um, you know, there's a sim similar kind of set of servers that, you peg into and you get kind of federated or threshold chorm. It's not actually chorm, but something chorm-like in effect, like blind eCash. And then you can use that. The difference is the, you know, there's, you can see how much Bitcoin is pegged in, but you can't see an audit real time, how much has been issued in the blind format. And that's quite hard to do. But that also, you know, that has benefits too, right? So it's, it's a kind of side effect, like the unauditability is a side effect, but it is quite scalable and extremely private. So it's just another layer two trade-off, which can be pretty interesting for Bitcoin users for the appropriate use cases. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it, it really, I mean, I'm sort of, it sounds good to me because I think you get some of the, the benefits of Bitcoin, the digital scarcity and the real value and the transparency. But you could also, when you need to use it for a private transaction, you have a way to, you have a, a way to use it while preserving that value. And I think that would have addressed, I mean, I know I, I was friends with Lynn Sassaman, uh, unfortunately, before he, he died, uh, the guy behind Mixmaster, uh, one of them. And, you know, he always was a little bit unhappy with the lack of privacy in Bitcoin. I think so many men in liquid, I think, do really excellent jobs addressing those in a way which maintains sort of core principles of value. Now, I think another question is, so this technology, we're also working on it at, with NIM, but we're doing it in a slightly different way. We're going back. So you mentioned, Adam, there's this guy called Stefan Bronze, who basically took some of Chom's deca- uh, digital cash concepts. He said, well, is there a way you know, is there a way uh, we, I can use this in a more general purpose? So is there a way I can, for example, uh, you know, use not just to prove I have a certain amount of money, but let's say to prove I'm an American or to prove yeah. I'm British or to prove I'm over 18 or the use case, which has been driving me absolutely crazy because I'm in Europe. Uh, you know, I, I feel like every day, you know, even to go outside, I have to go to a restaurant. They ask for this COVID passport. They want my ID card. This is all to me, giant violations of privacy. And I said, well, you know, even if you really want to do this, these techniques are, are total bullshit because in reality, we have ways to prove things anonymously by kind of these kind of um, uh, generalizations of, of, of Chami and eCash. I know you coded up, I think, one of the first open source implementations. I, I guess Browns was probably closed source, uh, Credlib. And we've taken some of that, those concepts and moved them uh, in, a, in a general purpose direction as well, because what we're trying to do at NIM, you know, one of the problems the hashcast solves is the problem of DDoSing. So we're trying to use these kinds of anonymous credentials to prevent essentially giant DDoS attacks on our mixnet. Yeah. Uh, but um, I think they are really general, kind of cool general purpose technology from the cypherpunks that a lot of people have forgotten about. I don't know if you have any feelings on anonymous credentials or history with Credlib and all of this work, because it's another fascinating strain of cypherpunk work. Yeah, I mean, um, Stefan Brands was actually originally David Chom's PhD student, but he finished his PhD with different advisors. And uh, Chom's eCash system was using the RSA crypto system and blinding in that space. And it, at the time that Stefan started, it was considered to be impossible to do blinding with DSA and uh, or discrete logs. And Stefan proved that wasn't the case by making us actually more efficient and flexible system that, that seemed to gain advantage from using discrete logs. So that was a kind of leap forward in the technology. And one of the limitations of the basic Chorm scheme is that there was no denomination for a coin. So if you if you wanted different denomination coins, you had to have like different public keys for each coin, and then you'd get a privacy leak because you know somebody could look at the denominations that were being spent, and that, that much would be obvious. And so if you if you had a unique amount, it, like you'd lose privacy. Whereas Brand's version, the coins could have a, you know an arbitrary value and you could make change. And so it was more flexible from that point of view. So that that became kind of one attribute of it. And actually in that format, the you have what is uh, compatible with the Pedersen commitments. So it's actually very similar cryptography to what are used in confidential transactions, but it's it's more general, so it can generalize the multiple attributes. So you can have, 
you know, a coin with a value and another attribute, which is a type, let's say a currency. This is euros, this is dollars, this is Bitcoin. And then you can have more attributes like, you know, about a person, I'm eligible for this or so on. And he has a kind of a simplified Boolean circuit proving system where you can prove basically logical statements about involving your attributes without revealing the attributes. Like I'm over 18 and I live in this country or I don't live in this country or, you know, my balance is under this. You can prove all kinds of weird things involving your eligibility for something without revealing the specific inputs that make you eligible. So that's kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, I would say that anonymous credentials, I mean, you see in Ethereum all these really bad concepts, like people, I want to put my identity on the blockchain, or even sometimes Bitcoin with the, the did technologies I'm not a huge fan of. I used to work at W3C, and I think, you know, we do have from the cypherpunks ways to do generalized identity in a, in, a, in a way which is essentially privacy preserving, which discloses and selectively discloses only what we need to disclose. And the technology that we're seeing now deployed in Minimant, some of the stuff that NIM is working on with anomalous credentials, uh, all of this stuff goes back to Adam's early work and Stefan Braun's and Chom's early work. I think this work uh, can, help you, uh, can help you address uh, a lot of these, these, these problems that we have and in, in, in a way which is a little bit more effective. Because I think one, one of the things, you know, at least for me, I want my, my information that's personal, my personal data, my age, my address, my name. I feel like that should all be private by default. And the, you know, the account-based model of Ethereum, just putting all that, shoving that, all that in there, trying to shove it on top of, of Bitcoin in some crazy way, doesn't really make sense. The, you know, the UTXO model is better, but it's also important to say that you know, the reason why Bitcoin is transparent is because you want to preserve this digital scarcity. But when you're in other use cases, like, you know, I don't know, proving that I you know, can cross this border or whatever, or that I have, for example, in them, access to this mix that I can make two gigabytes of traffic anonymous, I think these kinds of use cases anonymous uh, credentials are better at. And it's, it's one of these weird bits of work. So the thing with, which is kind of amazing about the cypherpunks is that, you know, and Adam is, you know, one of the, the pioneers here, but there's many other pioneers that, that, that you know, some of, a lot of them are, are gone, like Lynn Sassman and Hal Finney, and a, a few are still with us. Uh, Ian Goldberg is doing wonderful work as a professor over at University of Waterloo. But regardless, I mean, there's all this other kind of technology that I think we should develop. And I think one thing that we've been looking at and the problem that privacy enhancing technologies has historically had is that it's, you know, really it's not in the best, <laughs> the best interest of nation states to, to see people use them, at least, uh, you know, that, at least intelligence agencies, let's say. And so historically, you know, you've seen, seen things like Tor take off with a mixture of government grants and uh, volunteers running nodes. And I think that has actually worked remarkably well. If you look at Tor, it's got like two to six million active users, depending on how you count them. It's hard to count, of course. It's a privacy-preserving system. But you're still seeing like there is demand. And you're seeing, you know, if we can ignore the fact that, that you know, mobile coin is a weird SGX Monero ripoff, just ignore the fact that they have a payment system. But you look at Signal as just a messaging app. You know, messaging, uh, you know, privacy is messaging, there's a demand. You're seeing Signal growth compare, grow in compare, comparison to, say, WhatsApp. And I would like to have the Bitcoin community look at some of these other cypherpunk technologies in, in more detail and, and figure out how we can essentially enable people not just to have uh, transparent and, and valuable digital cash, but how we can actually also keep our identities private. Because one of the problems is if your identity is completely public and you're someone that you know, has a lot of Bitcoin, 
you know, you could be a target and uh, and you may be doing something you think is completely legal now, but there's no uh, guarantee it will be uh, it will be considered legal in the future or that even laws will be respected in the future. Right. So, you know, you could go to say, I don't know, Russia and get kidnapped uh, by, you know, at a Bitcoin conference. I've, I've heard rumors that this is these sort of things are possible. Or, and so I, I do want people to kind of take this privacy enhancing technology seriously. And I, I would like I do think, you know, uh, Bitcoin gives us the chance to kind of both experiment these technologies by looking at this very clear use case. How can I make my Bitcoin transaction private? How can I defend that peer to peer transaction? How can I make sure my connection to the full node is private? I would love to see Lightning evolve to something where there's like a knob where I can say, I want my Lightning transaction to be fast and transparent, or I want my Lightning transaction to be slow and not transparent. And Lightning uses a lot of the same technology, like Sphinx packets that were used by Mixmaster, uh, Mixminion, sorry, not Mixmaster, Mixminion, the anonymous email remailer from the Cypherpunks, and uh, Mixnets like, like, like NIM. We use the same packet format, so I think there's some possibility for growth there. And now you're seeing with uh, Minimint, a kind of revival in a, in a Bitcoin-centric way of, of Chami and eCash and the privacy properties there. Haven't seen anything really big on anonymous credentials, but hopefully that's always kind of one step away from Chami and eCash. So hopefully that, that stuff all eventually works out as well. My fellow plebs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th, is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four-day-long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you are a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. You want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. Yo, my fellow Bitcoin lovers, have I got something specifically curated for you. The Deep Dive is Bitcoin Magazine's premium markets intelligence newsletter. This isn't some paid group shilling buy and sell signals. No, this is a premium Bitcoin analysis led by Dylan LeClaire and his team of analysts. They break down in an easily digestible way what is happening on-chain, in the derivatives markets, and in the greater macro backdrop context for Bitcoin. This newsletter turns volatility into a joke. So hit up members.bitcoin.magazine.com and use promo code podcast for 30% off the deep dive. That's members.bitcoinmagazine.com, promo code podcast for 30% off. Divorce your pay group and learn why Bitcoin is the strongest asset by Dylan and LeClaire and his team. I do think maybe it would be good to get questions uh, from the audience about all, all of this uh, stuff. I know that was probably a lot of material very quickly, some of it very Yeah, well, I was about to ask I think... that. Um, I know we have a lot of very uh, esteemed Bitcoiners in the audience. Uh, if you'd like to come up and be a part of the conversation, please raise your hand. Uh, I will definitely be doing some very strong betting. So... Yeah, I don't, I don't want any like random conversation or 
um, anything like that. So uh, if you think that I'm ignoring you and you should be on stage, send me a DM. But yeah, if you're in the audience, again, I see a lot of uh, developers, privacy experts uh, would love to invite you to join the conversation. But I mean, Adam, I don't know while we're waiting for folks to kind of uh, request to come up. Uh, do you want to kind of respond to Harry and uh, you know the ideas that he just shared? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that um, the credential concept is interesting because it can, uh, you know, get away from the dossier effect where there's a central service that is, uh, you know, archiving and logging everything for later analysis and turn it on its head to be, well, this is the information I choose to disclose and it proves only what you need to know to provide me service. Um, so I think that's a step forward and that, that's something that Zero Knowledge was trying to do in fact but uh, it's kind of pre-Snowden the demand for this you know for the tour and all privacy was much lower I think post-Snowden there are a lot more people interested in using VPNs I think Bitcoin and cryptocurrency has created you know another demand and reason to care about privacy and network security which is uh, you can get robbed <laughs> or you know network attacks um if you're careless about your location and your IP address and transactions you're sending. So I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting time for building privacy networking technology for general internet use in addition to like Bitcoin and crypto related use cases. Thank you. Lola, welcome to the stage. Shinobi, welcome to the stage. Uh, I guess feel free to jump into uh, the conversation. Welcome, Austin Hill. Sure, thanks. Go for it, Shinobi. Um, oh, yeah, Lola, go for it. Yeah, I have two questions, actually. So first of all, I'm a huge fan of the Custom Post protocol, which I think is what NIM was originally based on. So I'm a pretty big fan of NIM as well. Um, I have two questions, though. The first question is from, if I understood it correctly, right now you are paying out node operators or rewarding them in Bitcoin. And from what I've heard is that the plan is to have your own token. So um, I just wanted to know, or maybe you already have your own token, um, if you have some updates on that. And the second is... Um, if you could comment on taking investments from uh, Andres and Horowitz, um, who I think we all know are sometimes classified as friends of the NSA um, with their involvement in uh, undermining the encryption of voice over IP with the purchase of Skype, who shortly after were, um, were launched in the PRISM, in the PRISM project. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to see if you have any comments on that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we do use a reputation token that was on Liquid and currently uh, where it's on WebAssembly. We uh, do not, again, we, we, we are by the book. We have a, you know, we have a prospectus. Uh, we do not uh, want that token used as payment. So it's important to remember that when you, you could just say, and I, I think this is a reasonable criticism, why can't NIM just use a sort of Bitcoin bond? And, I, and the argument there is essentially, you know, you could imagine a version of NIM, and maybe someone will build it, that uses a reputation purely in forms for Bitcoin. But because we're trying to essentially balance the demand 
uh, for bandwidth with the ability of nodes to mix traffic, uh, we essentially did decide to go with our own reputation token. This, you know, this the concept of reputation tokens in Mixnet's very old, predates Bitcoin. Tor used to be a for-profit company that failed called Reputation Technologies. And so, you know, we're okay with that. That being said, we don't want anyone to ever use in, uh, any kind of NIM reputation token as a means of payment. For that, you should use Bitcoin. People should pay for it in Bitcoin. They should be paid out in Bitcoin. And furthermore, it's very important people do not invest in uh, NIM as a token or in anything as a, anything as a token as an investment contract. So that's uh, security. All right. So securities, uh, you know, there are ways to do debt securities and stuff. Uh, Bitcoin mining notes are one way, which is a, a good way. Uh, but that being said, it, 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 that is actually just not what people should do. It's if you want to invest in something, you should invest in well, obviously Bitcoin. That's the only cryptocurrency I hold, at least. So I just want to be clear that there's a little distinguishment between using a reputation token to track reputation and a general purpose means of payment, of which I think Bitcoin is really the only design that, that holds water. In terms of Andreessen, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about Andreessen and Skype. Uh, I'll have to look into that. In terms of, of funding, you know, if, if someone had just stopped by and given us a giant amount of Bitcoin, uh, we would uh, not have had to take venture capital funding. But we did take venture capital. We've taken venture capital funding since the beginning because we are a venture which plans to uh, become successful. And as you know, as an academic, you know, there's there's multiple levels of hell in venture capital. And I've done a lot of different kinds of funding. Uh, the original work from Katz and Post and NIM was all funded by the European Commission, who didn't ask for any back doors. You can look at the code if you don't believe me. And the original work from Tor was funded by the Naval Research Lab. So. You have direct government nonprofit funding, uh, and then you, if you don't want to go down that path, then you have venture funding, and, and there, there's a different options there. So, for example, I used to work at MIT, and at MIT, I was like, man, we really should build a mixnet, commercialize it, and I talked to some people at MIT, and they said, well, have you talked to NQTEL? NQTEL is actually the venture arm of the CIA, so they, they exist, they're a venture fund, and they build tech for the CIA. And of course, you know, and to my knowledge, uh, the U.S. government, there's a project called Racer, is indeed building a mixnet. They're building their own mixnet uh, because Tor doesn't work too well in China. And so it's called, I forget what Racer stands for, but essentially it's a DARPA project to build a mixnet, the world's probably slowest mixnet, uh, in order to kind of get through the Great Firewall of China. So, you know, when we looked at the, the space of, of funding, we thought Andreessen was interesting insofar as that they actually had a lot of experience in something that I personally don't have uh, a lot of experience in, uh, which is running a company. So uh, they haven't asked us anything about security and privacy. Uh, we did get, I think, the funding because we were supported by Dan Bonet, who's working on DC nets, that's sort of like pipe nets. And Dan Bonet knows us from the crypto elliptic curve wars, at least, and the, my previous work in W3C. So I think Dan pushed us uh, into A16, and Dan Bonet, I mean, I think he's a pretty good guy, and his crypto Coursera course is definitely something everyone should take. And then, to be honest, Andreessen has been pretty good to us insofar as that when we have a problem on HR, or we have a problem with legal, we have a problem with looking at, like, debt securities or something, I have an army of lawyers and an army of people with experience and startups I can lean on and call. And I'm happy. I'll clarify this all in a blog post. Now, that being said, there are there is some very bad behavior. So I think Andreessen's great uh, in terms of if you haven't had a start before and they provide a lot of training. And that's been a lot for me to learn. 
but where they're not good is I think, you know, you, you want to be very careful around, I think, the Web3 meme. You know, I'm not, as much as a Bitcoin purist is, say, probably Adam or Jack, you know, I think there are interesting technologies on anonymous file store and stuff that could be built. But I think what you really want to be careful of is just like disguising NFTs and other, you know, sort of crap projects with some sort of weird branding. And they use this as an excuse to essentially do various forms of, uh, you know, kind of dumping on retail and all sorts of chicanery. And I do think Andreessen, uh, you know, definitely has been attacked for doing that. I think the question is, have they done it? And I probably... But I don't I don't have any concrete evidence, at least from the people we talk to, you know, Andreessen has actually seen a number of companies through, you know, through development. I think Adams had similar experiences with Mosaic and and other folks. And we would have I, I do think that it's like it is a hard trade off. Do you want to run this as a commercial company like NIM or Zero Knowledge Systems? Or do you want to run this as a nonprofit project like Tor? Or do you want to run this? And then you got to kind of choose you know, who to work with. And, you know, it, I decided to go the commercial route and chose to work with people that I thought could, could actually help us commercialize. You know, I think reasonable people can make different choices. I mean, I, I do think, you know, Blockstream at some point had some of the, some similar choices. Well, I, I forget exactly who ended up funding Blockstream, but generally, you know, the whole venture world is unfortunately quite small. And uh, yeah, there's, I'm sure there's bad behavior, but there's also things you can learn. And honestly, like we tried for years to, to work all this stuff in a pure nonprofit space and you just can't attract good talent. Like one thing that Blockstream does and which NIM is trying to do is you can attract talent, you can keep it. That's what pumps the code out. That's what gets things working. And to do that, you have to offer people, I don't know, real salaries basically. And pure volunteer projects come and go, uh, but the real problem is, is not the moment of creation. The real problem is the maturation, the maintenance. And this is where I think for-profit structures are, are, I think, much superior. In other words, startups deliver code. And it's very exceptional to start the, the nonprofits that deliver code. Awesome. Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> if it's any uh, consolation, I, I definitely pressed Harry a decent amount um, regarding at least uh understanding the reputation token, uh, you know, at the beginning of, you know, just meeting him and learning about NIM, but uh, seems to check out. Um, Austin Hill, Daniel, welcome to the stage. How's it going, Austin? You've been you've been on stage a little bit longer. Would love to uh, have you join the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Uh, glad to see this conversation occurring and, uh, you know, just maybe comment a little bit. Obviously, uh, Harry was talking about some of the work from brands and Adam obviously spoke very credibly because, you know, he coded cred lib, but I was happy to hear kind of some of this work is reemerging and getting some attention because uh, I agree with Harry's comment. There's a whole suite of cypherpunk technologies that go well beyond, you know, that were really freedom enabling tech. Some of the work that Alex Gladstein at, uh, you know, uh, HRF talks about uh, there's a whole suite of issues on the internet related to privacy, identity, uh, surveillance, surveillance capitalism, that in and of itself, even though I think a lot of us have uh, really bought into Bitcoin and see Bitcoin as freedom enabling technology, that uh, especially around financial sovereignty and being able to uh, own your own money and uh, move power to the individual from the state, but that in and of itself is not 
all of the solutions needed. And a lot of the solutions that were contemplated around shifting from an identity-centric world to one that includes NIMS and reputation capital requires a robust infrastructure. It's not just the cryptography. One of the problems we had at Zero Knowledge was how to bootstrap those systems. And what's kind of exciting in today's world, I think, is there are opportunities, whether it be like very large-scale systems that are, have large communities, whether that be Twitter, Reddit, or other ones that have yet to be invented, social, you know, social gaming, Discord, uh, a whole bunch of other uh, services that could start to move to federated pseudonymous identities that where the reputation credential stuff of brands could actually solve a large problem. Because one of the problems you have in any NIM-based identity system is the idea of throwaway identities, uh, identity pollution space where people just have sock puppets. And when you start to establish kind of blended identity credentials where you have credentials like it is a person or some sort of financial cost to a NIM, you're able to build a richer investment in persistent pseudonymity where you can deal with some of the iterated uh, prisoner's dilemma of if the cost of a NIM is zero where the cost of spinning up a NIM is zero. Uh, then it's very, very easy to just have massive amounts of them. And we see what happens in like Reddit and other communities when you have a zero cost of identity or a zero cost of establishing a new one. But if you can do much more rich identity credentialing systems that, as you mentioned, uh, don't have to be linked to or, or, or can be linked to a, a richer set of identities that is never disclosed. So and this allows you to present a credential that says, OK, I have the right to get a NIM in this community, but I, I don't want to throw away that NIM. I don't want to abuse that NIM, but I can use it without leaking or being tracked over many different uses. And that was one of the key benefits of Stefan Brands, that you could set up an identity credential NIM and not have it be linked to any of your other identities, and, but have it be blinded. And so uh, I'm excited to hear more of this work is being done. I still think there's just loads of effort. And I was glad to hear you bring up Dr. Ian Goldberg, because some of the tech that comes out of University of Waterloo, both from tracking uh, nation state surveillance for some of the work they're doing aside from TOR, uh, with, I think it's called, I'm trying to remember the name. They have a massive project that actually tracks uh, nation state surveillance, uh, blocking nation state censorship. Uh, I think you're thinking it? Citizen Lab, maybe? Uh, no, this was actually... Uh, I saw it at tour. I'll find the name of it. But, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of work at the root level of the Internet where there are major vulnerabilities that uh, distributed and cypherpunk technologies, I think, could address um, that right now we're moving away from. More and more, we're seeing each nation state start talking about a private version of the Internet that allows them, like in the Arab Spring, to turn off access to an entire country. We've seen it at Miramar. And when it's not that, it's partnering with large surveillance capitalist companies like Facebook that provide the primary means of access by subsidizing Internet. And that requires you to then give up your privacy. And so anything that we can do, and I think Bitcoin, the wealth that's being accumulated amongst liberty-minded people in Bitcoin, I hope finds its way back into angel investing, funding of some of these projects, and seeing a more robust cypherpunk tool set and I know, you know, some of that work is being done by new startups, 
but I think we need a lot more of it that isn't, as you mentioned, tied to some weird tokenomics where you're trying to launch a token every time you're trying to fund new freedom technology. You know, actually, Austin, you, you kind of touched on loosely, like something I wanted to bring up. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, Harry, like the, the idea of identities that have like zero correlation publicly between different interactions and things like that. Like that, that is a very good thing and a setup for a lot of use cases. But for some use cases, like I see a need for the exact opposite, you know, like my identity as Shinobi, like I intentionally want that to be publicly indexed. I want everything at least public, like not private interactions with people that I do with this identity to be public and to be correlated. Because that's the whole reason that I constructed this identity is to build that public correlated reputation. And I, I just kind of wanted like your thoughts on like, why do you think there needs to be such like a binary line there? Like I, I can have this reputation with all of the public interactions I engage in all correlated, all out in the open for people to see. And I can still use, you know, blinded mechanisms to prove little things selectively with, without leaking things in private or to engage in a, a private interaction that isn't necessarily correlated with all of my, my public actions. But for a large degree of what I want to do under this pseudonym and with this reputation, I want all of that out there so that people can actually see what I do, what I, what I say, how I act, and actually, you know, judge me for all of those things correlated together. I, I would just comment that that's what the goal of some of these toolkits are, is it shouldn't be binary. It should be in your control. And in fact, you can, with some of the blinded credentials and other cypherpunk tech, be able to do more nuanced statements like that. So you could have, for instance, a reemergence of web of trust where you can say, okay, this is a pseudonym that actually has 40 or 50 uh, accreditations by other pseudonyms or by known identities that say this is the unique shinobi uh, without having to show everyone that's on your web of trust tree or without having to reveal your uh, true identity. But And it actually adds credibility to your pseudonym when you can show more accreditations that don't necessarily have to reveal your true identity. And you can then reverse it and be totally pseudonymous, just showing I have a pseudonym that has five years of history and more than 50 people in this web of trust have asserted that I'm a real pseudonym. But in this use case, I just don't want to reveal the actual name. And so to give you control of that should be the goal. Yeah, I mean, my, my point, I mean, I think it's more of like an implementation or deployment viewpoint. So the reason why I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm hardline against identity systems that I use and things like COVID passports, just because I think it creates a, an infrastructure which regardless of what you think about COVID, it will uh, be abused. I mean, we have, we have never existed in a world uh, where we had to, you know, the, the right to associate, the right to move to physical space should not, I believe, to public space, uh, at least, be controlled by a kind of public or private computational uh, infrastructure because the, 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 the right for abuse is, I think, is, is, just, is just too high. I mean, I say this as, you know, I'm a political dissident. I, I had to deal with, you know, I, undercover police for the last 10 years tried to literally just fuck with me at airports. Uh, 
it's been going on for a long time and you know and i have it very light i can only imagine what it does to people who are really targeted so i think because i've seen these technologies be abused so i'm very perhaps overly worried overly paranoid of that but that leads to my preferred deployment path so i'm not against look if people people like i just i think transparency is a lot of value in terms of money that's why bitcoin has value uh, I think there are people who transparency and identity has a lot of value. For example, if I'm an influencer, uh, you know, I guess my identity is is where my where my value comes from, my my money, uh, and maybe they want to link everything. Or my reputation as a great coder on GitHub, I want that to link me to I don't know, maybe I should get something else. I mean, you know, in, in an ideal world, you know, we wouldn't have to have startups because people that made great code would somehow just get Bitcoin. And, and 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 prosper that would be wonderful and, and i'm happy to see square and, and, and other folks pushing that direction um i also do want to say that you know speaking of a16z i, I pitched nim at ev williams and stuff with chelsea manning in 2017 and you know it, you'd be surprised it is incredibly hard uh we were not it's very hard to pitch privacy projects even in the in the equity space right now it's just very hard to pitch privacy projects in silicon valley and in general and most of our early backers were almost entirely uh non-american now um what i would want to point out is that i think it's a deployment issue about identity so if you want your identity to be I think identity can be public, but I want that to be something that I can opt into. I don't want that to be something that's put upon me. I don't want FATF. I don't want a government. I don't want anyone saying I have to be public by default because the problem with being public by default is that you then have, it's very hard to layer privacy on top of being public. Once information is leaked, it's always leaked. You never go back in time and de-leak that in, uh, de-leak that information. So I prefer systems that are based on anonymous credentials which let you start out as anonymous and private and then leak ideally in an unlinkable manner as you need. Now, I do think there are cases where people need, you know, public sovereign identities, and, and I hope those people use the appropriate technology stacks. I just don't want that technology stack to be a default for people like myself who don't want it. And I think, you know, and that level, I think it's really parallel to COVID passports where, you know, I'm totally okay with people who want to prove that they've had whatever many vaccines to be able to prove that. I just don't think they should ever be mandatory because maybe I don't want to prove that or maybe I don't, you know, and I don't want to be discriminated against for for not having to prove that. So I think it's 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 and, and, and it's very hard to go from like public by default to private, but it's pretty easy to go from private to public. And that's why I think you want to start with kind of robust zero knowledge systems, build anonymous credentials and then build to public systems like DIDs rather than like kind of slap trying to slap the zero knowledge on uh, at the end. Uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, to each his own. I, I do hope it all works out for everyone. And uh, we, we, any kind of identity system which is not controlled by nation state is to some extent a, a step in the right direction. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's not about moving back and forth between the two. It's about just having both options available, like compatibly. You know, like th- there's no reason that you couldn't take something like the, the did spec and just have a compatible ID or identity set up there that you don't index, like that never makes it into the blockchain. But having that standard format and be, you know, you you can actually have tooling out there that is a lot easier to make interoperable across the two. Like I could privately share that identity out of band and it would be workable with the tool suites out there built for 
interacting with bids that are publicly indexed. You, you know what I mean? It, it, it's just about like the the compatibility. And well, I'll, I'll give a quick I'll give a quick example. Um, so you know, I mean, you know, different people can think about it different ways, but you know, one thing that 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 we have done them is that we have work uh, with the European Commission do what's called privacy impact assessments on this COVID passport stuff where, you know, my verdict is probably thrown in the fire. Um, and we told it the European Commission, <laughs> they decided not to fund us after we told them it should all be thrown in the fire. But uh, regardless, it should be. Um, and second, even when you try to do it in a privacy preserving manner, it's really hard. And so I think maybe you're just underestimating how hard it is to go from private to public. I, I we think we agree that there should be both options. But like, let me just give you the example of uh, one of the few real world use cases of anonymous credentials, which is the IRMA system, which is a blinded RSA anonymous e-credential uh, built by funded a nonprofit manner funded by the Dutch government. And it serves as the basis of the Dutch COVID passports. Uh, and but there's a big problem. And you, you look at that design on paper and you can sort of say, well, on paper, man, that looks pretty anonymous. Like, that's a great system that the Dutch have just solved the privacy problem for COVID passports. Hooray for the Netherlands. But one of the problems with that system, and it's the same time I see a lot of blockchain systems, is that they ignore what we started discussing about the network traffic, the, 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 the TCP IP packets going back and forth. So in the initial uh, Chami and Irma identity system used by the Netherlands, uh, it, it, you had this giant flaw, which is that every time you wanted to do something with an anonymous credential, you essentially had to talk to a big central server. That central server didn't learn too much, but the very fact that you were talking to it revealed where you were and that you were somehow being forced to prove your COVID status. So they had to, the people in had to tear that part out in order to build some sort of offline COVID verification system. And, and so that's what I'm saying. It, 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 the, the, the reason why I, I really, I do agree we should have both options, but I want the people to start with the most privacy preserving thing. Uh, and privacy preserving, not just in terms of what's on chain or what's off chain, but again, that's where we started. Like lightning is not private. It's fast. It has somewhat better privacy by virtue of being off chain, but a, a, an attacker can look at the nodes and de-anonymize people. Uh, likewise, you know, the same thing with identity systems. I can look at when you're using it, if it has an online component, and that online component is talking to a blockchain, for example. You know, be that Bitcoin or be that whatever crazy thing the European Commission's trying to push out. And, um, you know, that's kind of dangerous. And that de-anonymized use, you can do all the magic zero-knowledge proof tricks you want on chain, but if you're peer-to-peer -peer no, broadcast... But that, that's kind of my point, though. Clear your screws. Like, you, you don't have to index that idea on chain like what i'm saying is like just the data format of like the identifier of that key pair can be kept completely yeah but what, what i'm talking about is just chain. the very fact of talking to the chain just like the no but that's that my had, point though is you that that's a problem that format without having to talk to the blockchain without having to look up some remote index and when you're just talking that key pair in isolation that just happens to be the same format as dids indexed on the blockchain, it's just an isolated key pair and it's just passing those proofs around. And th there is no need for that interaction that leaks that metadata querying some back end somewhere. Yeah, just let's get. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe but get... then I would. 
Maybe we can get Chris. I would on question the... maybe you don't need a blockchain. So. Yeah, no, let's let's get Chris on the details, right? So there's DIDs is just a data format. It's a PKI format, just like you know, they, there's a, a cert PK, there's a cert format, there's DNS zone files, right? They're all just formats of data. So the DID spec only sets forth a format of data to say if you resolve an ID, which doesn't require going to a blockchain in many schemes, you get a document back that contains the public keys and and if the person chooses routing endpoints, right? One of the most basic DID methods is called did key. And like its name, it's literally just a did that's composed of a public key. So it's self-resolving, right? It's in the sense that there is no like query, it's like literally a public key. So like if someone hands you a did colon key type did, they're just handing you a public key. And if they can answer a challenge against that public key, they, you know, own it, right? They own the, the private key. Now, there's, um, you know, systems like ION, for instance, uh, that, you know, we're working on and, and continuing to integrate in our work, um, allow for both. I, I, I mean, I, I think we could debate. I mean, I guess, I mean, my, my only point was there are probably many use cases where my understanding is what a lot of people want to do is they want to create a big PKI for identity, and maybe it's just the keys, and that's cool, and people are okay with that. But some people aren't okay with that, and there's ways to solve these problems without having a big PKI on the Bitcoin blockchain or another blockchain or just in a big database somewhere. Um, and so I tend to, and I think this may be where Austin was going, I tend to, uh, I, tried, I try to avoid PKIs when not necessary. And um, that's kind of how I feel about identity. I, I don't want my identity tied to PKI either on-chain or off-chain. But I understand that there may be people that do, and these those people can use the did stack and go with it. I, I would be very where I kind of draw the line is where these sort of decisions get get put into nation state level mandatory infrastructure. So, you know, as a voluntary system, you know, I mean, you, I may not like it, but I can't stop people from, for example, using Ethereum. I can't stop someone from wrapping whatever in Ethereum. I can't stop. Someone from my, I mean, I have this friend of mine uh, who's really into universal basic income, which I think is a, one of the worst, universal basic income to me requires a surveillance state. So I think one of the worst ideas is humanly possible, but there are well-meaning people who I otherwise like, who otherwise seem technically bright, who somehow think it's a good idea. And for those people, they can go for it. Uh, but I, I think where I just draw the line, which is more of a political line than a technical line, is the use of any uh, identity technologies in nation state level or mandatory infrastructures. Uh, that's where I kind of really. So Harry, really can I agree with on. you? So I want to agree with you on that. So a of, you know, I'm a libertarian, so I'll definitely agree with you that I don't want the government mandating any of this stuff. Um, the only, the only point I'd really want to reiterate, and I got cut off from spaces, I'm sorry, is that DIDS is the spec that allows for completely private, private, non-blockchain, non-PKI formulations so like did key is literally just a public key there's no like public exposure unless you i guess go and post your did key public key publicly which you don't have to do unless you want it to be um and that's fine right no blockchain you just give someone a public key um other methods like i was saying like ion allow for both like you can actually create these completely off system dids that have all the capabilities of like routing and stuff but aren't aren't indexed, aren't public, they're not published anywhere, unless you wanted to do that at a future point. So there's all sorts of formulations with DIDs. So it's it, the only thing I disagree with is like putting them all in one big box and saying like, oh, don't use DIDs if you want like private or, you know, things that aren't indexed or addressable, because you can just choose a DID method that doesn't do that. That is my only point. I agree with many of the other things you said. Uh, I mean, I would say that I think there is a, a fundamental disagreement technically insofar as that 
you know, the question is, does a key identify you? And maybe you say, well, it, it can or it won't. But uh, for me, uh, you know, one of the nice things, for example, about Lightning and them and MixNets and and a lot of anonymous credentials is that they are what's called cryptographically unlinkable. So I get some ciphertext. I re-randomize it. You know, I'm doing a Lightning transaction every hop. I, I hope, at least, if it's implemented correctly, the Sphinx packet is being re-randomized. And that means it's bitwise unlinkable. Like the bits aren't the same that come into the node that came out the node. And anything where the bits are somehow consistent over time, that is an identifier, even if it's not meant to be one. Sure. I, I, let me agree with you again. I want to agree with you again. Retrieval and the access to that identifier, yeah. while not cryptographically linking information, it can leak information on the, the network level. And that's that's something we're, you know, we were discussing earlier. We had Tor, we had Freedom. It's still not a... A perfectly solved problem. It's a very hard problem. It's. I actually talked to Whitfield Diffie about this once at Financial Crypto, and, and Whitfield Diffie told me. I asked Whitfield. I said, "Why did you guys, did you guys just not think about? Was David Chom like the only one thinking about the metadata problem? Why weren't you thinking about it?" And Whitfield Diffie said, "He said the reason we did public key cryptography was because it was an easier problem to solve. The other problem seemed unsolvable. The problem of." of control of disguising who's talking to who at any given moment. And this is, you know, this guy was looking at the stuff in the seventies. So I do think, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I'm being too, uh, how do you say too harsh? Um, let's just separate them though. Cause like, I'll, I do I'll... think, I do think that, that, you know, that, 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 that people, it, it just reminds me of Bitcoin where, where people tended to believe pseudonymous keys were, 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 were somehow anonymous. Pseudonymous keys are a huge step forward above, you know, away from, you know, fully identified, let's say, KYC systems like the traditional banking system. And NIMS themselves, you know, which led to Mixnets and Hashcash and all this multiple work, NIMS themselves are just actually, you know, historically pseudonyms. And like you said, value can accrue to persistent pseudonyms. I think Shinobi said that. But that being said, I think we should have an option uh, for absolute unlinkability. And I think it really is a deployment question where it's like, if I felt we had a foundation of an anonymous credential or, or zero knowledge proof that's unlinkable, then we built stuff on top of it that would be stronger than trying to do the reverse, which is taking something which is fundamentally linkable, like a long lived public key, and then building like somehow privacy on top. But, you know, I mean, whatever on some level the market decides this stuff more than anything else but i mean like hey. hey this the the issue of like that metadata timing unless you also solve the network communication problem also exists for things like chamian tokens because those have to be actually checked and reissued every time you use something like that and you know if you look at things like um script cash that uh frank braun was building there's actually schemes where you can build Chaumian credentials out of public-private key pairs so that in addition to the blinded signature from wh whoever is attesting to what, you can also have that extra control mechanism of requiring a signature from your own key so that that credential is not redeemable without that extra step of you authorizing use of it. Well, maybe to take this back to Bitcoin, I mean, there's a, so, so, you know, at, yeah, so at NIM, we're trying to go after the traffic analysis problem first and then build things on top, like anonymous credentials. But that's just not what happened with most systems. Most systems have, have just ignored 
uh, anonymous communication channels and overlay networks completely. Now, it's interesting that sometimes, you know, I was always, when I looked at Bitcoin, I was always wondering why Bitcoin didn't kind of have, think about this stuff ahead of time. It ends up, some of the Bitcoin devs did. I wonder if anyone's in the room or if Adam remembers any of this stuff. Where I think in the early days of Bitcoin, there was a concern that the peer-to-peer broadcast itself was corrupted. Uh, what was sorry was less corrupted than Tor. So they said, "Well, let's assume that Tor has a lot of corrupt exit nodes, which ends up, you know, the Keck attack showed that indeed this was the case." And so, you know, the people who were involved in Bitcoin, they said, "Well, you know, our our goal is to make sure this transaction gets mined properly and gets into the blockchain." So therefore, we're not going to use Tor because we're worried that the exit nodes might, for example, kill the traffic. We're going to use a pure peer-to-peer broadcast. Um, and so, yeah, the, the network traffic issues are are hard. And, you know, again, with Bitcoin, because the value of Bitcoin comes from the transparency, but there are lots of people that want to use it anonymously. So from an infrastructural standpoint, when I'm designing a digital cash system whose value is based on transparency, then a pure peer-to-peer broadcast makes perfect sense. But if I want to unlink it uh, from the usage, from the, you know, the desk I'm using it from, then I think you want to delink a light client from the full client. And, and that's maybe where things like Tor and MixNets uh, come in really handy. Or like, for example, in the case of Liquid, like the communication between the, the Liquid nodes is pretty sensitive, but maybe not the users of Liquid as much because, you know, so I, I think, you know, it, it, there are, as I think Adam said back in his paper in 2001 with anonymous systems, there are, it, is, it is a space of trade-offs. Uh, that being said, I, I think it's good to begin with a hard line on privacy and then build up from there because once again, it's just the, this almost physics, physical state of, uh, of this physical fact that once you leak something, you can't unlink it. Um, so, you know, we can have a principal disagreement on how to build these things. I do think we agree on at least some of the core values. So, you don't, so one question I have is, you know, so you talk about unlinkable, you know, schemes, right? So I worked with MSR on Spartan, which is a snark scheme. Um, definitely has the the property of unlinkability. And just so folks know exactly what this is, typically if you're doing any kind of credential and credentials aren't bad in the sense of like in the primitive sense, like, right, credential is essentially just like some party says something about another party, right? And that's provable. And when you form these, you know, typically you're going to go to some sort of issuer. It needn't be a government. I could issue a credential to Harry that says, I like Harry, Harry's a nice guy, right? It could be anything, any statement. And typically I'll go to whoever that issuing party is and I'll say, okay, great. Like I'm going to prove to you maybe some crypto cryptographic material. We're going to do some exchange. And then you're going to give me back this, this thing, this proof that I can then vend out to different parties, the same proof and the bytes essentially change so that it's unlinkable. Like Harry's talking about, like, it's just not the same bytes. They can all correlate and compare notes and know that I'm like the same person, right. Presenting this, this credential. Um, and that's, actually separate, right? And in many ways, it's different than a did, right? So a did is like if you wanted some relationship with someone so they could recognize you again. And that doesn't mean a public relationship. I could create a did key with Harry, right? That he's the only one I ever speak over this key to. So he can know me in a sort of recurring fashion, but I never share it anywhere else, right? And then because I've established this linkage with Harry, he can issue me a credential that's a zero knowledge credential. And I can go use that and it's not like I'm leaking the public key that Harry and I use for our relationship. So the only thing I want to underscore here is these are two roughly different cryptographic constructs. And it's not like you choose one or the other 
you might use them in tandem or in combination. Is that fair to say, Harry? Uh, well, the way to think about an anonymous credential system is that it's a uh, so zero knowledge systems are kind of general purpose or can be encode, let's say, arbitrary programs. And that's not the case for anonymous credentials. They encode sort of arbitrary arrays, which most people here can think of as like JSON blobs. And I think the disagreement is you're saying, well, I want this key for our relationship. I'm like, hey, why don't we just share this zero knowledge proof and just do that? Why do I need this? this extra relationship key. And I think you have a set of use cases where that extra relationship and that extra needs a key and that could be super useful. And, you know, you need to have the whole PKI thing in there for some reason or another. Well, I do think that people are underestimating the set of use cases where you can just have an actual anonymous uh, credential where essentially what I think is it's unlinkable. It's unlinkable because the actual bits are different at every at every show and, and that that doesn't have to evolve necessarily a blockchain um you know it only there are cases where you might actually want to use bitcoin's blockchain uh i need to look at mini in more detail um for example you know preventing double spending with anonymous credentials historically chamian schemes relies on a central bank or in brands a central company i think brand was a microsoft or uh if i remember correctly and that was i think part of microsoft passport at some point under kim cameron or the the, the details escape me the the, I think that the, the question is, can we build anonymous control schemes which are decentralized? And that's the hard question. That's what I think NIM is working on with Coconut. Uh, I think that's what Blockchain is working on with, with MiniMint, where somehow it's 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 anonymous but pegged in and pegged out to Bitcoin in a similar fashion to Liquid. But you know, I do agree there could be use cases where maybe you need some public key. I, I would just say I would just say like you should always think about if you actually need that public key because anything you put on the blockchain uh can be tracked um you know, so we're not talking just, about just part so, of it man it's like how it works. yeah i, I want to jump into i'm kind of curious what uh what adam's take is on this conversation i know there's been a lot of back and forth um and you know from there i feel like it's we're getting close to time to to wrap it up so i apologize to to cut off the back and forth but I mean, Adam, uh, I'm curious what your two sets are on this back and forth. And then uh, from there, I think we can close it out. Yeah, I mean, um, I think uh, PKI is a hard problem. So it's worth avoiding. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are situations where you are trying to do something anonymously. And then if you need to prove something, you want it to be unlinkably anonymous. And there, there are systems for doing that, which should be mentioned. Whereas if you are pseudonymous, like you've got an ongoing contracting relationship or a subscription or something with a site, then maybe you need a recurring uh, relationship. And, and I mean, a subscription is an interesting one because, you know, technically all they need to know is that you're a paid subscriber and your subscription hasn't expired, which doesn't need your you know, your uses to be correlatable and synonymously linkable. So I think this anonymous unlinkability concept is is quite nice. And while brands credentials are not as a starting point kind of pseudonymously sorry, anonymously unlinkable, they can be reissued. So you can take an existing credential and get a new one that is unlinkable without even revealing to the server, like the issuing server, what the credential details are. Just give me another one of these with the same attributes in it, and it will give it you 
and then the trick is you only use it once. But there are protocols that do this, that kind of have a, a reusable but a linkable uh, credential proving, you know, subscription or something like that, where you don't have to create, you know, we, we don't have to refresh them with issuer. So there's different protocols. Um, I think the thing that worried me actually more about identity and blockchain is that there are a lot of people who are used to working in a hierarchical world and working with PKI and certificate authorities who might mistake that and try to write a smart contract with identity in a blockchain. And that would seem like a bad direction to me. So I was kind of, it's generally concerned that people would look at it as a, you know, they've got a hammer and this thing looks like a nail. So they'd start using or misusing identity as the principles, as a security concept, the principle, which is like the thing that you back up that is the primary reference point. And in the banking world, the principle is the, is the identity, right? If you lose your login password for online banking, you go back with documents and affidavits and signatures and stuff, and they give you a new password. Whereas with Bitcoin, the key is the principle. And if you lose the key, sorry for your loss. So like back it up well. And so I, I like the, the latter because it's a, a new paradigm which takes identity out of the equation. So it makes everything fairer by default, and then you back it up. And if you want to prove anything, you just prove it bilaterally to whoever you need to work with, and hopefully in an unlinkable, anonymous way. I mean, real, real quick, Adam, to like kind of bring this back to identity. Like th this is a, a whole point with like uh, unlinkable credentials. Like, let's say you get a credential and you lose it. How do you reestablish that without some kind of consistent, isolated, like, key or something that you gave to the issuer of that to be able to go back to them and go, hey, I lost this. I need a new one. Like, well, I mean, if you, lost, if you lost all your that. keys, right. Right. Well, I mean, you could design a protocol which does that, but it implies that you haven't, in fact, lost all your keys, right? You've, you've got a backup. So if you've got a backup... And maybe you lose your online key, but not your offline, give me a new certificate key. Okay, fine, it works. But generally, users are bad at backup and passwords and security, so they're probably going to lose it all. And then their only option is to re-enroll. However it was, they convinced the issuer to give them uh, credential in the first place. They'll have to do it from scratch, I would say. Well, I mean, but that's kind of like you're talking an anonymous credential. Like, that's a, a non-deterministic piece of data. So, like, that's a, a literal piece of digital data you have to back up. But with Bitcoin, you know, we have mnemonic seeds. We have all of these schemes that make public-private key pair um, storage and backup a lot simpler. So you, you could have something like a, a, an HD key scheme like that, where every time you get a credential from somewhere, you give them a separate, like, public key that's totally isolated from the rest and get that anonymous credential. And that way, if you lose that, like you can always go back to them and not have to start from zero. So like well, I absolutely yeah. there, there's a lot of utility here for like ZK proof based credentials, like things that are unlinkable. But I, I think it's kind of short sighted to just say that because a, a public key itself, if you use it everywhere, could be linked together. We should just throw that out in, in thinking about these types of schemes. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just that a lot of people learn about public key cryptography due to Bitcoin. 
and then they're very excited about it and they want to apply it everywhere. But actually, there are a lot. It's an old problem, and there are a lot more sophisticated, privacy-preserving ways to do it, like you know, one-use keys, zero-knowledge proofs, and a key hierarchy, where you can prove things. So, question is, will developers, you know, put the effort in to learn about these things and deploy them, or will they do the simplest thing possible to sell their altcoin? Right, and you know, a lot of altcoins have dot alt and like their entire balance associated with their name that they're using on Twitter. Okay, that's a supremely bad idea, but you know, you've got to overcome the uh, social obstacle that's causing them to do that, right? Yeah, I mean, one right, of the are... Hey, sorry, Daniel. Uh, I want to give uh, Harry one last word to close it out. He helped uh, organize this uh, this session, and then we got we really got to close this one out. I got a meeting in six minutes that I got to prep. <laughs> yeah, yeah so... I, I've got I've got a meeting in six minutes too. I just want to thank Adam for his time. I know you're intensely busy. Uh, I think you know everyone, of course, knows Adam from uh, Proof of Work, and Proof of Work is the foundation of Bitcoin. But I do think knowing the history of you know, uh, Mixmaster, the cypherpunks, Mixnets uh, is both good for understanding how we got here today. And also there's a bunch of unexplored, as Austin put it, uh, technologies really deserves revisiting at this moment. I just want to say, you know, honestly, we're doing pretty good right now. Like, uh, the you know, we've built some amazing infrastructure as a community, uh, but I think a wave of repression is probably coming <laughs> And I think now is the time to really double down and, and, and add privacy or build new privacy tech. And I, I hope if anyone is interested, you know, just jump on in in whatever way you see fit. And there's many different use cases, many different kinds of people. Uh, respect to Daniel and everyone else who's doing one sort of thing and other people doing other sort of things like Shinobi or whatever. But we just really do need to, to, to build this tech now because if things get harsh in the future, we won't have the time. Uh, to build the, the technology because we'll be too busy dealing with the, the repression. Amazing. Thanks so much, Harry. Thanks so much, Shinobi. Thanks so much, Adam. Thanks so much, Daniel, Lola, everyone who joined and uh, helped add to the conversation. I would encourage everyone in the audience, go check out the Bitcoin conference. We're trying to bring Bitcoiners together to meet in meet space to discuss these ideas and you know, uh, lead the the front lines of freedom. You know, I think that Bitcoiners are truly on the front lines of freedom, uh, and gathering together, you know, in meat space is uh, is a big part of moving that movement forward. So, b.tc forward slash conference, check it out. Uh, we have special pricing if you pay in Bitcoin, and if you use promo code Satoshi, you can save ten percent off. Thanks again, Adam. Thanks again, Harry, and everyone else.